0: Now, as you are flipping over to Acts chapter 2, I do want to say thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning, for the hard work y'all put in, for the production team that helps pull these things off seamlessly week after week. The production team is trying to balance two churches at once. They've got the in-person church, and they've got the online church. And a lot of the stuff they have to do uh, for the live environment, they also have to do for the online environment. So thank you to the production team and all of the volunteers. To make it possible. Uh, welcome to the online folks. Facebook, if you're on Facebook, hit the share button. If you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. If you're watching on the website or later on in the week on the podcast, thank you for joining us as we continue this conversation through God's Word. Um, we decided instead of during the 21 days of fasting to do, usually we'll do like a three week series that's really focused. On that, but this year, since our 21 days theme is abide living sent, we thought, you know, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Why don't we just take our time through the whole book of Acts together, going back to look at the Word of God and how God, when He arrived through the power of His Holy Spirit to live in the lives and indwell in the lives of believers, like how God really changed the world um, and the landscape of the world in the lives of those believers. Many, many people came to know and worship and love and surrender to Jesus. Um, Throughout those first several centuries, even though they were under extraordinary attack and persecution and their life was being threatened by the faith that they had in Jesus, the numbers continued to grow and explode. And it was because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his people. And so we wanted to have a look at this as a 21st century church to be reminded that the same spirit and that same power dwells in us. Like that this wasn't a one-time offering for the people of God back in ancient of days to get the whole thing called Christianity kicked off and off the ground. This was a master strategy that God said, had when he told us that he was going to send his spirit to come and consume us in our lives, to come be with us and in us so that we could be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Your Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth is right where God has placed you. Your town, your city, your neighborhood, to this community, to the heartland, to the state, to the country, and then worldwide. And God wants to do that same work in and through his 21st century American church. And like, just to be honest, we need to come face to face with this book. The American church in particular has gone off the rails. And why God is sending missionaries throughout the world to transform The people of the world, through the message of the gospel, I'm going to pray that God sends missionaries to the United States Christian Church. Mm. Because let's be honest, like we've learned how to play church, but we've forgotten what it is to be the church. There are many, many of us darken the doors week after week. We have great attendance records, but we know not the king of glory. We have not been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going through the motions and call it church and think that we know God. My fear is that just as in the days of Jesus, when Jesus said, there are many who are going to stand before the King of glory and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We hosted small groups for you. We had perfect church attendance. We gave to your missionaries, and the Lord's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. The walk of Christianity is about a relationship with God, not a certain pattern of rhythms that we model in our life that looks like Christianity. That's not Christianity, that's churchianity. We want transformed lives to come to know the power of Jesus, to join him in his kingdom mission. And yeah, we're going to gather, and we're going to encourage one another. We're going to celebrate God together, and we're going to do churchy things because that's what helps fan the flame of the work of God in our heart, but that is not the relationship with God. Don't, don't miss it this morning. Mm. Don't miss it. Yeah. We had a little bit of a heart-to-heart last week. I didn't preach a sermon. We just had a family conversation, and we talked about, we talked about um, just how important it is that we are reminded of our central kingdom call to be witnesses For the kingdom of God and just playing church is not something we're going to do anymore. We're not going to be another country club, Christian gathering like there is all over the United States. We're going to be a church that is on mission, that has a fervor and a zeal for the word of God and a zeal for the world around us. And a longing to see them come to know the Savior that has rescued us. Now as we continue our conversation this morning, we arrive at Acts chapter 2 where God answers the promise of sending his Holy Spirit. We're going to get to take a close look at what that looked like for them in that culture. And then we'll talk a little bit about what that's going to look like for us in our culture. And so if you made it to Acts chapter 2, we're in verse 1 and it says, When the day of Pentecost arrives, say Pentecost. Now, a lot of times in our culture when we hear the word Pentecost, we think of like Pentecostal, or we think of like Pentecost as like this moment in history where the Holy Spirit came upon people and they began to speak in other languages. Just know like this was not the first Pentecost. Pentecost was a regular rhythm of the people of God for centuries since the days of Exodus, since the days of the movie The Prince of Egypt. All right, let me put that in street talk. All right. Since the days that God rescued Israel out of hundreds of years of captivity in Egypt, remember when he he told them that they would have to slaughter lambs, put the blood over the door, so that the Holy Spirit would pass over their house? And of course, the people of God did that, and the people of Egypt did not. So that's that's when the Lord, of the many plagues, there was the plague of the firstborn, took their firstborn child to show that he was God and that Pharaoh was not. And so God set the people free. Finally, Pharaoh let the people go. Well, 50 days after Passover, which they started, we celebrated for centuries, 50 days after that Passover, we got to what they called Pentecost, which is when, historically speaking, you get up to Exodus 19 and 20, when God himself, like descended upon Mount Sinai. We call this the Shekinah glory of God. Like you could see it, you could hear it, you could feel it, you could smell it, you could probably taste it. God had descended upon Mount Sinai and he calls Moses up because he was gonna give Moses the Ten Commandments. And that happened on Pentecost. Now, for centuries and centuries to come, after that, the people of God would gather around what we call Easter to celebrate Passover, and then 50 days later, they would gather again to celebrate Pentecost, which is just a reminder of the faithfulness of God, the gift of his law to the people, and a reminder as a people to adhere to the law of God until this day happened. They were gathering like they always did to celebrate Pentecost, a reminder of the law of God and his gift to bring order to his people for the sake of their salvation. And God threw them a curveball like they weren't expecting. God showed up again, and this is how it happened. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, about 120 of the followers of Jesus. You can read about that in chapter 1. Suddenly there came like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. How cool would that be? I'd like to hear what that sounds like. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire. So you just like fire is the metaphor to explain how like these variety of languages just started to come upon these people that were sitting in the room. these divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of those people. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues or other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, they were coming to observe Pentecost. And at the sound, the multitude came together. They heard the mighty rushing wind. They heard a smattering of a bunch of languages declaring the glory of God. So the people started coming together to get close to see what in the world was happening. They came together and they were bewildered. Imagine the the shock. The all they were stunned because each one of the people that had gathered was hearing them, the apostles, the disciples, in his own language. To the point where they were amazed and astonished saying, like, are not all these people Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? It's a mighty picture of God showing up to do what only he can do. It's a room full of Galilean people that started speaking. You can read between... Verses 9, 10, and 11, just a variety of the languages that they started speaking just like that because the Holy Spirit came upon them. No education necessary, no Rosetta song necessary. The Spirit of God showed up and boom, they started talking every known language in the world so that the world could hear them. Now, some scholars would say that the apostles began to speak in all those different languages. Others would say that, well, the scripture says they heard it in their own languages, so maybe they were speaking Galilean, but the Spirit was like a veil and kind of translated into other languages. Languages before it hits their ears either way this God-sized stuff right here folks. the same Spirit of God that is still alive in us today the same Spirit of God that seeks to declare to speak the language of every listener today that's actually one of my prayers every time I walk up here is that God would speak the language of the listener yeah and while he may have me say in English and you may be hearing in English like I don't know what the Spirit of God says to your hearts. I have people say all the time, like, oh, well, you said this in your sermon, and God really, like, convicted me about that. I'm like, I never really said that in my (laughs) sermon. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I've never heard that before, but thanks for the credit, you know? So, no, but the the Spirit of God is constantly translating the Word of God into the hearts of those who have ears to hear. Hmm. And sometimes, yes, sometimes it happens in, like, other known languages, which is powerful, and it's awesome that we get to see this right here. Let me just give you a snapshot kind of from the history of the people of God of like this moment, what all this fulfilled in, in what God had promised to his people for generations. This, this was such a powerful declaration of the power of God that he was here with us, that he was shifting gears for the sake of reaching the world, that He showed up in this way, and the expectation was that everybody that was watching on was going to raise their eyebrows and say, wow, Jesus really is king, and wow, that Holy Spirit really is God. And here's what some of the fulfilled promises uh, that God fulfilled in in this very moment of history for those of you note-takers. Jeremiah and Ezekiel declared that there would be a day that the law of God would no longer be written on stone tablets, but would be written on our hearts. Acts chapter 2. Joel said in chapter 2 that there would be a day that he was going to pour out his spirit on his people. So no longer would the spirit of God just kind of come and go as he did all throughout the days of the Old Testament, but he would come and dwell with his people all the time. He would be with us. Which leads to the next one, 1 Kings 8 and 9, that God would no longer dwell in a building, but now he was going to dwell in the hearts of those who declare him as Lord. Let, let's put those two together. The Holy Spirit no longer comes and goes. He no longer dwells in buildings built by human hands. He no, you no longer have to go to the temple to meet with God. You are the temple. Those who are in Christ Jesus, he has come to dwell within you through the power of, of his Holy Spirit. This does not become church when you, when, when the, we, we don't, I, I remember growing up singing a song, Oh, we can't have church till the Holy Ghost shows up. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a cool song, but it's totally wrong. Bad, okay,
1: Bad theology. That's bad, bad theology.
0: theology. No, we are having church because you showed up and the Holy Spirit is in you. You know, you, Paul, Paul you get the te-
1: difference. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you are a temple of the very spirit of the living God? One of my mentors uh, told me, said, you know, I've been to the Holy Land. I spent a season there. Uh, and, and the Holy Land's holy because Jesus chose to come there and to do his ministry but he said, you want to see the holy land now? He said, take two steps and look back. <laughs> That's the holy land. Oh man! Because we are indwelt by the holy one of God. Like you, you want a sense of value on you this morning? If you are indwelt by Christ, the very spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinitarian God, he calls you home. You are not without mm-hmm. what you need to be everything that God has called you to be.
0: Yeah, and that, and that, by the way, I mean, and Cameron says it as good as anybody, but, like, th- this is not to put the onus on us. Like, we, we are some unique and special people, um, that we have some special power. Like, it is to put all of the glory and all of the credit to give to God that he, that he would be such a loving king, that he would actually come and dwell in these imperfect and cracked vessels, as Paul calls us. And so, um, last but not least, I mean, just, just saving uh, a couple of my favorites to last, I mentioned uh, with God fulfilling these promises um, in this very moment to just declare, like, he had arrived, this was his work. Uh, I, I gave you a, just a quick blip of what happened uh, at, at the first Pentecost when God gave Moses the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on it. Um, if, you, if you read that passage, Exodus, ni- Exodus 19 and 20, God actually, his intent wasn't just for the encounter to be between him and Moses. God actually says to the people of Israel that the Hebrew phrase alahar, which means come on up. In other words, like when God descended upon Mount Sinai and he was going to have this real encounter, with his people, he invited the nation of Israel to ascend Mount Sinai to meet with him in a very real, very rich, very personal way for the first time in the history of their relationship with him. Alahar, come on up. But if you, if you read the passage, the people of Israel responded, we ain't going up there. <laughs> Man, that's terrifying. That's the presence of God. But the, the, the smoke and the clouds and the lightning and the voice of God like thunder, like Moses, you go up, tell us what he says, and bring it back down to us. And so here's a picture in Acts chapter 2, like God fulfilling even that. When his people refused to ascend Sinai to meet with him, he brought Sinai down to them in Acts chapter 2 to meet with us. Amen. Amen. Another fulfillment of the promise of God. We couldn't make it to him. So he traversed No matter what the cost, no matter how far he had to go to come to us. Last but not least, probably the most glaring parallel that we see of God fulfilling a work that he had started in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of the famous story of the Tower of Babel. Back in Genesis chapter 11, we hear the famous story of the Tower of Babel where, remember, we're just a few generations away from Noah in the ark. So everybody on earth can draw a direct line to Noah as their great-great-great-grandfather. They all speak the same language. They all live in the same area. And they got this wild idea that they could build a tower, Genesis chapter 11, that could get them to where God is. In other words, we can make it to God by our own strength. And so God's response was this. Verse 6 of chapter 11, Genesis, behold, just listen in, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. So God says, come, let us go down there, confuse their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. And God steps into the story. Everybody spoke the same language. He steps into the story. He strickens the people. Nobody now speaks the same language. Nobody can understand each other. And so the world scatters. And that's where we get the different languages and the different nations of the world. And then we fast forward to Acts chapter 2 there was a gathering of many languages from all over the known world, languages that existed because of the Tower of Babel. And he gathered them together at this place called Pentecost, and God declared the one language, the one truth, the one gospel, the one hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he united the world around one language. And what's powerful about that is God himself declared in Genesis chapter 11, the reason why they're so powerful and unstoppable is because they speak one language. So I'm gonna mess that up. And so when we see the Spirit of God descend upon his people, and now all of a sudden they understand the gospel through one another, this is a declaration from God that I'm empowering you once again with one language so that you will be unstoppable. Mm. So that this message of the gospel would be unstoppable and timeless. What, a, what an awesome like display of the glory of God. Yeah. And every Jew that had gathered from the known world was meant to see this and think, oh my gosh, I have missed it this is the king only he can do stuff like this but in typical gathering fashion when you get a bunch of you know bible thumping godly people in the same room and you see a remarkable experience a remarkable miracle of god god is obviously doing something extraordinary then we get to first verse 13 but then there were mockers in the crowd there are even people that gathered who believed in god who believed in the work of god But yet they mocked and they looked at the apostles who were now speaking a variety of different languages and said, ah, they must be filled with new wine. Them boys drunk. (laughs) I would have loved to tell you a story this morning about how our pastoral team got to experience somebody just this past week experiencing a miracle healing of God. I'd love to tell you the story about it. But I know that many of us would celebrate in that moment and then there would be some that are mockers, even right here. Some people that are just so haughty think that they know God better than everybody else that they would actually criticize an evident work of God that's right in front of their face. And this was, this was the enemy's way in to try to snuff out what God was launching right in this moment. And we still play, just, just have the tension of that war even in the body of Christ to, today. But like this passage alone has created a bunch of division amongst the body of Christ all based on kind of how we interpret it, how our denominational background views this passage of scripture. And so we've created dividing walls amongst each other because of this specific passage of scripture and some of the ways that it unfolds throughout the New Testament. And you know what's interesting? Like This was one of God's greatest declarations of the unity of the body. He literally took a variety of languages and he he communicated one message to them all at the same time. Empower them to be an unstoppable people through his Holy Spirit. And yet there were even some that were critical of that in that moment. May that not be us.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: If, if anybody, as we have our variety of interpretations of this passage, I get it and I get why. But like if its result is causing division, then we have missed the principal purpose of why he showed up to begin with. He showed up to unite us one common purpose, one spirit, one God, one mission, one message. And and let me remind you, Revelation chapter
1: verse 7, verse 9. And after this, John, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and every tribe and every people and all languages standing before the throne, crying out with one loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Who sits on the throne? That, that's where we're going. God takes the multiplicity of language, turns it into a judgment, restores it for the mission, and it's gonna end up in singing the praises and the glory of the Lamb. And we've been called into this mission, into this work here and now.
0: Powerful picture. And so Peter steps up to speak now. This is going to be your homework for today. I told you as we're going through the book of Acts, we want to be able to hit every word, but we're going to try to hit like all the major themes and major sections as we go. Um, this afternoon, I hope you'll take some time to read Peter's sermon, um, that he stands up and preaches. This is also a fulfillment of a promise of God. Jesus told the apostles that he looked at Peter, and he says, I'm going to name you Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. This was after some major failure in Peter's life and here Peter is preaching the first New Testament sermon of the New Testament church and God launches it from Peter, old knucklehead of Peter. Mm. This is a fulfillment of that, too. Peter preaches this word. He talks of the the work of Jesus. Jason read some of it during the the worship set. He quotes Joel. He quotes David. Like, he's speaking the language of his audience so that they understand, like, this is God. This is the promised Messiah. This is him arriving (laughs) on earth to come and rescue us, and he's inviting us into the rescue mission. Like, this is it. And as they witness and behold the work of God, and as he preaches about the glory of God, here's the response of the people in verse 37. Now, when they heard these things about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom they were obviously guilty for sending him to the cross, when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, then what shall we do? I mean, we're like, what's the right response to this moment? We've heard about the glory of God. We've witnessed his power. Like, what's our right response in this moment? And Peter says to them, well, there's only one right response to that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the, this promise is for you, verse 39, and for your children, and even for those who are far off. Like, I wonder how many of y'all feel like you're far off this morning. That promise is for you, too. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them and encourage them and challenge them, saying, hey, listen, Grace Bible, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and those who were added that day were about 3,000 souls. 3,000 Jews that showed up to celebrate Jewish things met Jesus mm. through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were never the same again. Man,
1: what would we do if 3,000 folks got saved on a Sunday?
0: Some of us would criticize it. Mm. Some of us would think, ah, that can't be real. Mm. But hopefully most of us would celebrate. And hopefully most of us would go and tell somebody about what God has done. And I tell you, like, the the Lord longs to see you come to know him the intimate way that he knows you. And I'm telling you, like, he is, I say it all the time, I can't say it enough, like, he is madly, Beyond our scope of contra- comprehension, he is madly in love with you. So crazy in love with you as such that he has like gone through this incredible journey to remove all the roadblocks, to come after us, to bring Sinai to us, to bring his presence to us, so that whosoever would believe in him would receive the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, the promise of a future, the forgiveness of sins, and it's all because of what Jesus has done. It'll never be based on what you or I have done or didn't do. And if you're sitting here this morning, you think, man, that can't fit for me because I'm one of the far off ones. Mm -hmm. Like I'm so far removed from the grace of God in my life. Like there's no way. There's got to be like a a process that I've got to travel in order to get back into the good graces of God so that he can forgive me of my sins and so that he can take me to be at his own. That is a sermon from the devil. Mm -hmm. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel tells us that in an instant, 3,000 people, some who were far off, who confessed Jesus as Lord, could be saved and transformed in a moment. What about you? Now, we're in the middle of the sermon right now, but I'm finna ask y'all the question. Because I bet you there's somebody in here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and has never confessed him as the Lord of their life. And it's like, this may be new to you. There may be a lot of question marks in your mind, but you can feel the Holy Spirit just like gripping your heart right now. And you don't understand what it is you're feeling or what it is that you're supposed to do next. And my response to you is what Peter said. Just repent and trust in Jesus as Lord of your life. The king of glory has arrived, and he's invited us into a real relationship with him, and he's done all the work, so all we have to do is confess and believe. And the transforming work of our life happens after we come to Jesus. You can't get there on your own. You can't fix you before you come to him. You don't have that kind of power. You've been trying to fix you, and it hasn't worked. And it ain't gonna. When you come to the king of glory, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and in you, it's amazing what he can do. He can make far-off ones, missionaries for the king. Yeah. He can really turn you into who he has created you to be. And it starts with a simple acknowledgement and confession that he is God and you are not, that King Jesus is the only one who saves. But do you know that? Do you believe that this morning? I want you to bow your heads for just a second because we had a lady in the last service that confessed Jesus as the Lord of her life for the first time. And I want to see if there's anybody in here in this service that has not yet confessed Jesus as the Lord of their life, but you believe in his words and work. You believe that he died on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins. You believe that God raised him from the dead. The scripture tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Forgiven for your sins, set free, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, like when the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, it is going to look all different kinds of ways for all different kinds of us. There is no one way that it looks like when he shows up. But let me tell you, he promised to show up and he is going to show up in your life to dwell in you once and for all, for all time. And is there anybody in here this morning that has not yet trusted Jesus as the Lord of your life? I'm not going to drag you down here to the front, but I would ask that you raise your hand for just a second, because I love to connect with you after the service. So I'm gonna just take this moment. Then we're gonna get back into the sermon. No keyboards, no emotional music, just you and the Lord. I get no extra credit. This is about you and your right now relationship with God and your all of eternity relationship with God. And let me ask you, like, do you know Him? And have you given your life to him? If you have not, I, I just, I, I, I beg you to raise your hand as an acknowledgement of surrender to him this morning. You'll be joining another wonderful woman in our last service that did that. I'll take just a moment. Just slip your hand long enough for us to see you. We'd love to ju- connect with you after the service. Go ahead. I see you. God bless you. Anybody else? I see you. God bless you. Anybody else? All this really is is you confessing to me and Cam that you have made this confession to the Lord. The power is in your surrender to him. Anybody else, while we're taking this commercial break, the most critical and important thing we could ever talk about is the life-changing work of Jesus, anybody else? Before we move on to the rest of the sermon conversation, uh, Pastor Cam, 10 o'clock service online folks, let's celebrate together the two that at least I saw, the two that I saw that have confessed Jesus yeah. as the Lord of their life right here this morning. Amen. Amen.
1: That means, uh, that means the rest of you, this next passage is for you, oh Christ followers. Because uh, it's interesting, 3,000 brand new baby Christians come to faith. And they waste no time at all establishing some rhythms, some practices. Let's call them the basics. Because they did not want to miss what God wanted to do in them and through them. They didn't want the fire that God had birthed in their hearts to grow cold and stale. and They definitely didn't want the mission that God had begun to take a backseat to their own convenience and their comfort. And so we read that they were devoted Verse 42, read with me. And they were devoted to what? Four practices, four behaviors, the basics. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what happened when they were devoted to these things? Verse 43, and all came upon every soul. Say every soul. Every soul. That's everybody. Everybody. Everybody that was seeing and experiencing this, both insiders and outsiders in the family of God and those who were still curious and watching from the outside. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were, uh oh, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day. Attending the temple, they went to large group and breaking bread in their homes. They went to small groups and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If we read this in the Greek, here's how verse 42 would read. And they were continually devoting themselves to these things. Begs the question, what are we, what are we continually devoting ourselves to? Netflix, I am crushing a series right now. Like, I'm not even sleeping right now, and I'm convicted about that. Not enough to stop, but y'all pray for me. <laughs> but what are we devoted to? Our, our, our backswing? Endless Instagram scrolling? Our net worth and watching our portfolio rise or fall. Like what are we devoted to? They were devoted to practices that were going to ensure their spiritual growth continued. That their community with one another continued. That the mission of God continued to go forth. They were devoted to the apostles teaching. Why? Because Jesus elevated the word of God. And the apostles elevated the word of God. You remember Jesus when he was in the the wilderness being tempted by Satan? And Satan said, hey, I know you're hungry. I know you're hungry. Go ahead and turn these these stones into bread. And Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so these apostles, they were the ones who had the words of God. There was no New Testament. There were no epistles. There were no gospels. The biography of Jesus hadn't been written yet. Surely Luke had penned down some of his things, but it's not like books a million was out. And the Kindle hadn't released the Testament of Luke. So they only had the apostles' teachings. And could you imagine? Could you imagine, like, knocking on the door of the apostles every hour upon the hour? Yo, tell us again. Tell us again about Jesus. What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? What did he say in the upper room? Tell us one more time. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings, which means this, church family. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled believer who is not devoted to an ongoing study of the word of God. And equally true, there's no such thing as a spirit-filled church that does not continually devote itself to the study of and meditation of and chewing on and application of the word of God. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were also devoted to the fellowship. Listen, I know what y'all think when you hear that word fellowship. He's not talking about punching cookies and potlucks. No, no, no. The word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. And that word koinonia means having a common, mutual, shared goal. Sometimes it talked about sharing of our resources, of our money to meet the needs of other people. Sometimes it talked about sharing in an experience, sharing in tragedy or suffering. Right here, Acts 2, they're talking about having a shared common goal of contributing and giving to one another. What this means is that the foundation of the fellowship of the early church was a mutual generosity and meeting the needs of the people that they came in contact with. Now, don't worry. This doesn't mean that we got to get rid of all of our stuff. But this does mean that when the gospel took root in the people of God, they were willing to give of themselves and to give of their
0: stuff. Y- well, you know, it's just, it's they, Their needs were met, and they started seeing their surplus as a means for getting the gospel to a world that mm-hmm. hadn't heard it yet. And they they didn't want to continue to build the empire of themselves knowing that they had an extra piece of land or they had a building that could be devoted or they had resources or food that could be devoted to helping gather people together so that they can hear the word of God for the first time so that their lives could be changed. And It's the ministry of surplus. Who has greater surplus
1: than the American church in the West? Oh, I know. It's staggering, isn't it? And you know why they were able to give liberally and generously? because they were so confident that God had been and would continue to meet their needs that they could step into a room like this, not looking for love, but looking with love. They were so confident that God had and would continue to meet their needs that they were free to give themselves away and their stuff. Why? Because in a blink of an eye, 3,000 people passed from death to life. And they didn't want anyone else to live in that inescapable darkness any longer. They were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to worship because they were all about the breaking of bread and praying. The breaking of bread means that they ate dinner together. They ate meals together. And those meals, more times often than not, also had the Lord's Supper and Communion. Why? Because they understood that they never, ever, ever wanted to forget the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. And so they celebrated the Lord's table together. They were devoted to one another, both in the temple and going from home to home. And they were devoted to the prayers. They prayed everywhere. They prayed when they came to church and when they left church. They prayed on the road. They prayed before they heard a sermon. They prayed while they were listening to a sermon. They prayed over sick people and over dead people. And they were praying over all of the needs that they had and the persecution that was mounting. Here's the deal, church, A church that prays together is a church that is growing in maturity. And we must pray together. We must break bread together. We we told you guys this before. We even had a sermon series dedicated to the gospel around the table. I know that not all of you feel like you have the gift of evangelism. Do you all have a dinner table? It's one of the most compelling tools for the ministry of evangelism that you have. And so here's the deal. They had a ministry of learning in the early church. They had a ministry of sharing and relationship and ministry in the early church. And they had a ministry of worship going on in the early church. These are four practices. These are four behaviors that became regular and routine in their
0: life. Look at the results. Oh, gosh. They praised. They were living a life praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. And I'm thinking, man, having favor with all the people. When's the last time the Christian church had a favor with people inside the body and outside Mm -hmm. the body, all the people? Had favor in their community? Yeah. Had favor in their society and in their state and in their country? Like, um, Something tells me like there's something so magnetic about Christ-centered community. Yeah. About life-giving community that it that people long to be a part of it. Yeah. That's why I mean I really believe like the two most effective discipleship mechanisms in the world are the church and gangs. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he gang, gangs, G-A-N-G-S. gangs. Gangs.
0: You heard him, right? Yeah, because it create but it because there is something drawing about family and community and having one another's back and serving one another and, and being together and like, and the church, like we, we have to get back to that master strategy that the king has for us. Now, these last two weeks... Hold on, Taylor, that doesn't
1: mean you can go start a gang. I saw yeah, that I look know. on your face, man.
0: <laughs> so, yeah,
1: these,
0: these last two weeks... Now we've talked. We've really talked a lot about just kind of these ethereal ideas about, man, we're not going to be a country club church. We were called to be witnesses. We're going to exhaust our resources and our energy and our time and our talent towards being <laughs> witnesses for the gospel right where God has placed us. And that, that's a 30,000-foot conversation. And then here we are again. Man, the Holy Spirit has come upon those and dwells within those that confess Jesus as the Lord of their life, and he wants to use us to be on mission together in our church families and in our homes and around the table and in our neighborhoods. And that's still about 30,000 feet of like what God has called us to do. So I want us to wrap up this conversation, Pastor Cam, but let's talk strategy. Yeah. Like let's talk our sustainable strategy that God has been showing our elders of how Acts chapter two comes to life in the life of Grace Bible and its people. You got two friends? Anybody got two friends? Yeah?
1: Well, guess what? You can enter into a disciple-making relationship. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I hear you. Let, let, me, let me show you a picture. This is, this is our framework. This is our discipleship pathway. This is what it means to make disciples at Grace Bible Church. Doesn't make sense. Don't worry, but I'll unpack it. We, we, we define a disciple around here as one who is increasingly submitting all of their life to the leadership of Jesus and inviting others to do the same. Th- that's what a disciple is. One who is increasingly learning to submit everything in their life to the leadership of Jesus and inviting other people to do the same. But you know what we figured out? You can't submit all of life to Jesus once a week on a Sunday morning. You can't do it. And so we needed some different environments of disciple making. We needed some other touch points, some other places of engagement for us, the people of God, to grow in our faith and to learn how to submit all of life. And so uh, here's our four environments of discipleship. Okay, we gather. That's a large group. It's what we're doing right now. We gather. And when we gather, we want to train you to look up and look for God to see who he is and what he's done and how we are to live our life in light of that and what our identity is because of who God is and what he's done. When we gather in large groups, we want to look up. When our students gather on a Wednesday and our littles gather on a Sunday, we want to teach them to look up. We want to develop you when we gather. We want to develop you doctrinally. We want you to know who God is. We want to give you sound biblical doctrine. But how in the world are you going to submit all of life if you just gather in a large group? So we need small groups. Go. And our go environment is where we're going to gather together and live in community so that we can live on mission. And when I mean in community, I mean we start to treat each other like family. We live as family. We care for one another. We meet each other's needs. We are available to pick up the phone in the middle of the night when there's a crisis because we're family. Because we're, we're family Because we have been joined to the spirit of the living God and we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God. And so we learn to live in community and on mission. We gather around our table for meals. We we ask the spirit of God, who is it and what are we supposed to be ministering and serving in the community with our resources, our time and our treasure and our talents. And don't worry, our small groups, they're going to be about Bible study. But not just Bible study. Listen, we need less Bible study and more Bible obedience. We haven't lived out the last Bible study before we cracked open the next one. And so our small groups are where we develop you to look outward. We want to develop you missionally. So when we gather, we're developing you doctrinally. When we gather, and when we go in small groups, we're developing you missionally. And we need even smaller small groups. Our grow environment is where we are going to call our DNA groups. Our DNA groups are three people. Guys with guys, girls with girls. We know that you may need to have four or five. But three is the ideal number. Guys with guys, girls with girls. Because listen, even in a small group environment, it can't meet every one of the counseling needs that crop up when people who are broken and been put back together by Jesus still struggle with sin. And in a small group, frankly, I can't call a brother out for walking in sin in front of his wife. We need smaller groups where we can get with one another and we can DNA, D, discover the Word of God together and nurture our hearts towards confession and repentance. And A, put into action what the Spirit of God is calling us to. This is what's exciting. In the next couple of weeks, we're gonna call our entire church, you two online, into DNA groups. It's really easy to start a DNA group. Three steps. Find your people. You got two friends, you can launch a DNA group. Grab your guide. We've already created an introductory small group material. You can download it. You can pick it up next couple of weeks out in the lobby. And then check in for Connection. Text us and let us know you're meeting in the DNA group so that we can offer ongoing coaching and leadership development and cheerlead you towards the finish line so that we can saturate the Heartland region with the good news of Jesus. We see DNA groups blossoming into more DNA groups, into grace groups, into inviting people into our gathering environment. And finally, our our give is simply this. We give in whatever discipleship environment we find ourselves in. When we gather, we give reverence and awe to our God who is worthy. We give resources and tithes and offerings to the mission of Jesus here. We give when we gather in teams and serve our littles and hold our babies and minister to our teenagers who need to see godly counsel from grown-ups in a world that's so jacked up. When we gather or when we go in our small groups, we give of our money and resources, of our time when we gather around the table and learn to care for one another as family. And when we When we grow in our DNA groups, we give of authenticity and transparency. When we share what it's like to struggle, when we have unbelief in our hearts, giving is part of being a part of the body of Christ because we serve a giving Savior who held back nothing to redeem us from death.
0: So, what we're talking about is learning to be fully formed disciples of Jesus that join him in his kingdom mission. And don't be intimidated. We're not going to try to call you to be on chapter 20 when your life's on chapter 1. Yeah. When your life with Jesus is on chapter 1. We want, to, we want to learn how to start moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus and one another. That's our mission here, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And with one another. This is the way that the Lord has given our elder team. And today, again, we're talking about it kind of in theory, planting seeds. We've been developing this for the last couple of years. We'll start putting wheels on that bus come about February, but we'll talk a little bit more about it in detail and how practically that can flesh out in your everyday, ordinary lives where God already has you. In the meantime, groups at
1: gbc.life. Shoot me an email. If you've got questions, let's talk. Groups at gbc.life. If you want to launch a small group, if you want to host it, Talk to me. Let's keep this conversation going. We believe that God is going to use you to bring about the world changing work of saturating the heartland with the good news of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and your goodness through us in these days. Lord, we hear the mission. We know that you have equipped us with your spirit. Now, Father, convince us that we can do this because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.